Well, 2020 just keeps rolling on, doesn't it? Uh, I, does some of you feel a tremor this morning? Some of you? Yeah, several of you did there. So I don't know if anybody's keeping score on all this or not, but let's, let's add it to the list, right? Uh, uh, pandemic, uh, economic crisis, hurricanes, earthquakes. Uh, it almost sounds like something out of the Bible, doesn't it? Oh, wow. Speaking of the Bible, find John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter one, we're going to dig back into John's gospel uh, together and ask God just to, to teach us uh, uh, some things from his word. The goat, the greatest of all time, right? If you're a sports fan or something, it's, it's one of those great uh, discussions. Who's the, the greatest player in this sport or that sport? Or who's the greatest team or the greatest coach or whatever it might be? We do the same thing in other arenas of life. Movies, uh, uh, music. We rank almost anything as Americans, right? Here's the list of the presidents. Uh, here, here are the, the, the top schools. Uh, we'll rank almost anything. And if you want to create maybe a, a lively dinner discussion sometime, you might just throw out this question. Other than Jesus Christ, who is the greatest person who ever lived? And what made him or her great? Now, that ought to generate some discussion, particularly the second part of that, because everybody kind of has different understandings of, different ideas of what makes somebody great. We all have our own way of measuring greatness. And this is why this is important. It's not just a dinnertime conversation. The reality is that all of us are going to live our lives in pursuit of some understanding of greatness. Some understanding of what makes life good, what makes life meaningful, what makes life important, what it means to live a great life. We'll pursue some understanding of greatness. We'll be pursuing something and or seeking to please someone all of our lives. Well, if you happened to be around when Jesus was on the earth and you were Having that dinner, and you threw out that question as part of the dinner conversation, we already know how Jesus would answer. He told us in Matthew's gospel, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, if you think for a moment, if you were in that setting and you thought about what was known of John the Baptist, you would have thought, he doesn't really fit kind of the idea of greatness. I mean, I mean, he didn't move among the rich and powerful. Uh, he, he wasn't a, a political mover or shaker. He didn't travel in the right social circles. In fact, is he preferred social solitude and isolation, spending most of his time in the desert. He didn't project a, a winning image. He didn't dress for success unless you count camel hair and leather as the go-to wardrobe. I mean, he doesn't fit our understanding of greatness. In fact, as if most folks would describe him, they would have probably said aesthetic, aggressive. 
Fact is, he's just weird. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, he's just kind of out there. And yet Jesus, Jesus called him the greatest man who had been born of women. And so it might behoove us to say, what is it? What is it in John's life that calls Jesus to identify his greatness? And what might that say to you and I about living a great life? And I want to kind of summarize this, and we'll put it around kind of four marks, but there's a lot underneath each of those. Four marks of John, John the Baptist we're talking about here, John's greatness. And the first mark is he knew who he wasn't. He knew who he wasn't. Look at verse 19 there in that first chapter. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, please understand what they're really asking is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to say the things you're saying, to do the things that you're doing? Who do you think you are? And he begins to answer that question by telling them who he is not. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. The first thing he says is, guys, let me make it clear. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. Uh, the Greek word Christ is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. Some of us thought that was Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. No, no, it's, it's a title. It's, this, it's this, 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 this Greek transliteration of the Hebrew uh, word for Messiah or for anointed one. And he said, let me make you clear. I am not that guy. I am not the Messiah. But then he goes on to say, and let me add further, I am not Elijah. I am not Elijah. They ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. I am not Elijah. Now, the, the, to have some context and some understanding of this, you'd have to go back to Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, where there was this, this prophecy of this uh, Elijah who would come as the forerunner, who would come before the Messiah. And some expected that it would actually be the reappearance of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember kind of how he was uh, swooped up uh, to heaven there. And so uh, they expected this, this return of Elijah. And so they're, they're asking, hey, are you the reappearance of Elijah? He says, I'm not. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, I think I remember reading somewhere in the Bible that didn't Jesus say he was Elijah? I mean, I mean, kind of what's up with that, right? Well, let, let's, let's kind of understand, let's unpack it here for just a moment because this is sometimes a point of confusion. If you remember uh, in the other gospel narratives, when John the Baptist, before he was born, an angel appeared to his father, who's to be his earthly father, Zachariah, and he told Zachariah, this child that you are going to have, this child that you've all been praying for forever, this is who he is going to be. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient in the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so even before he was born, God told Zechariah, your son, he's not going to be Elijah, but he is going to be the one who goes forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so later on, when the disciples would ask Jesus, they said, hey, we've heard and we've read and we've been taught that Elijah's going to come before the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. He wasn't the reappearance of Elijah, but he is the one who came in fulfillment of that prophecy in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's not the Messiah, he's not Elijah, and he also said, let me make it clear, I am not the prophet. I am not the prophet. Are you the prophet, they asked, and he answered, no. He's not the prophet. So again, what, it, what does that mean? Maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I. It would have meant a lot to those who were asking the question. Moses ta- talked in about it and recorded for us in Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, Moses is here referring to the Messiah who was to come, although many first century Jews thought that they were two different people. There would be a prophet, and then there would be the Messiah, but Moses was pointing forward to the one who was to come, the Messiah who was to come. So one of the first marks of John's greatness was he knew who he wasn't. And by the way, that's important for each of us, too. Uh, to kind of know who I'm not. I don't have certain gifts or talents or abilities or opportunities, but that's okay. We need to understand who we're not. But he also understood who he was. He had a, a clear understanding of who he was. Skip back up, if you will, to verse six. We, we just brushed over this last week because I, I wanted to bring it in context of our, our talk about John the Baptist. Verse six, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, there's several things there. The first is John said, I am a man sent by God. I'm a man who is sent by God. God. John wasn't different just to be weird, right? (laughs) He wasn't unique just to say, I want to be odd for God, right? But to be obedient, to live his life as a person who had purpose, a person who was sent by God. When you begin to live on purpose, you begin to live on mission, you will look different, you will act different, you will will value different things than the world around you. And by the way, every one of us who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we're a sent person. We're a sent man, we're a sent woman. Because Jesus later in this gospel will say, even as the Father sent me, so 
I send you. I send you. Every one of us is called to live our life as a sent person, sent by God on purpose. And part of that purpose is that we are to be a witness to the light, a witness to the light. And so we, we have that opportunity uh, not, not to, to, to focus on us, but to point people to the light. And we looked last week when we talked about the greatness of Christ, the greatness of his light. And here in John's gospel, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Part of what is involved in you and I being sent is that we point people beyond ourselves. We point people to the source of light, the source of light. In a world full of confusion, in a world full of darkness, we point to the one who is light. He is the light, uh, the one who points to the light, a witness to the light, and he is a voice, a voice. And so they ask him again, let's skip down to verse 23. Uh, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And here is his self-descriptor, that he is this, this voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he makes reference to the fact that this is just as the prophet Isaiah had said. This is what Isaiah said. It's recorded for us in chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The even ground shall become level and the rough places a uh, plain. There was this prophecy hundreds of years before uh, through the mouth of Isaiah of the one who would come, this voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. But it also had some cultural context to it as well. They would have understood that. Uh, before a, a, a monarch or a king would, would come to an area, there would be preparations made. Just, just like today, if the President of the United States travels somewhere, he just, just doesn't show up, right? Uh, I mean, there are folks that go ahead and there, there's all sorts of preparations and there's security concerns and all these things. Well, in that day and age, if a monarch was going to come to a city, ahead of him would go forerunners, those who would uh, just shout out uh, that the king is coming, prepare the way for the king is coming. He would announce the imminent arrival of the king. And the city would then kind of jump into preparation mode. The route would be cleared, uh, things would be cleaned up and straightened up. Anything that would uh, slow down or, or, or reflect uh, badly uh, before the king arrived, they tried to take care of that. The forerunner didn't have any authority. He couldn't make them, but he was a voice to announce the coming of the king. And how that community responded a lot of times depended upon how much they revered the coming king. If they thought very well of the king who was coming, they made radical preparations. <laughs> Maybe if they didn't think much of him, they didn't do a whole lot. It might be like Democrats and Republicans today, right? <laughs> uh, you go to a certain city, it depends on the, who's, who's in power and who you are as to how excited they are about making the preparations along the way. John said, I am a voice. I am a voice preparing the way. 
But then he also understood that part of that preparation was he was a baptizer. He was a baptizer. Verse 24, now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Let's pause right there. Now they're asking again this question, who do you think you are? Who do you, how do you have the right to do what you're doing? They're basically kind of saying, you're pretty arrogant to be baptizing people because you don't have the proper credentials. You're not doing it the right way. Jewish baptism in the day, a Jew wouldn't undergo baptism. The only folks that would undergo a baptism would be a Gentile who would be, had been proselytized, who had been converting to Judaism. And the only folks that could administer that baptism would have been priests. It would have been in the area of the temple or perhaps a synagogue. And it would have been done according to certain rites and with, with clean water and all of these things. It certainly wouldn't have been done by some wild-eyed, locust-eating, camel-hair-wearing preacher out in the muddy Jordan River, right? But that's because this was a very, very different baptism. And it wasn't just for Gentiles, but it was for all. In fact, is he was calling the Jewish people. See, John's baptism was a public demonstration and identification of a person's repentance. For, for, a, for a Jewish person to undergo this, they were basically saying, even though, even though I have been born biologically in this line of Abraham, I am not in the line of Abraham. I have walked uh, not in obedience, not in, in relationship with God. And there is a need for me to repent. There is a need for me to turn again and to come to God as if for the very first time. And so John's baptism was calling people to say, don't trust in your heritage. Don't trust in your, your biological family tree. But prepare to trust in the one who is to come. John knew who he wasn't. He knew who he was, but he knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. And one of the first things that he knew, he knew of Jesus' presence. He knew of the presence. We just read uh, verse 26. Uh, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. You don't even recognize it yet, but there is one among you upon whom you have been hoping and longing and hopefully preparing for. He recognized the presence of Jesus. By the way, if you and I want to live a great life, we need to prepare our hearts and minds. We need to, uh, to, to recognize God's presence, God's activity, what God's up to in our world and in our lives. He recognized Jesus' presence, but not only his presence, but he recognized his greatness. He recognized his greatness. Verse 27, he talked about the one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And now, Jeff, where in the world do you get Jesus' greatness from that? Well, every culture 
has things that we just think are disgusting. <laughs> things that you just absolutely like would just turn your stomach uh, to kind of have to think about doing. In this day and age, one of the things that would have been kind of a disgusting job would be to take somebody's sandals off. It's a very, very different world. It was a world that uh, it wasn't air conditioning, that you didn't hop in your car, you walked everywhere, it was dirty, it was, it was unclean, it was, you sweat, and, oh, it's not like you had odor eaters for your shoes or anything. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a very, very different. And so one of the things that you did not ask someone to do was to untie your sandal. Because it was smelly, it was dirty, it was disgusting. In fact, there were rules around this. There were rules that even if you had a servant, if you had a servant, you could not ask a Jewish servant to untie your sandal because you could not treat someone of your own heritage that way. It was so disgusting. Rabbis had, had students, these disciples who would follow them and walk with them and live with them. And in many ways, they would serve the rabbi in all sorts of ways. But one of the rules was a rabbi could never ask a student to untie, to undo his sandal. Because it was considered that lowly. Now, this is what John's saying. John's saying... Not that, well, I am worthy to do that. I am worthy to do the lowest of the low. No, no, no. He said, I am unworthy for this one who is coming. I am unworthy to even do the lowest, most disgusting task in the world. That's how far above me this rabbi is. That's how far above me this one who is to come is. John's greatness was tied into the fact that he knew the greatness of Jesus Christ. And not only the greatness of Christ, but he knew Jesus' purpose. He knew his purpose. Verse 29, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A clear reference, they, his Jewish audience would have clearly understood a reference to the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 or Isaiah's messianic imagery in Isaiah 53 verses 6 and 7. This behold the lamb of God, behold the one who has come to take on all of our sin, all of our sin, all of our iniquity is going to be laid upon him. He and his blood is going to cover all of our sin. Behold the one that you've been waiting for. Behold the one that every Old Testament sacrifice, every Passover lamb, every year has been pointing forward to. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He understood who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. And he understood the unique nature 
of Jesus. Jesus' nature. Verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. He came to this understanding of the nature of Jesus that we talked about last week in those opening words of John's gospel, that the one who was before John, and you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Wasn't John born physically first before Jesus? Absolutely he was. But John acknowledges, whoa, he is not like me. He is not like you. This is the one who was before me, before you. This is the one who was in the beginning. This is uniquely God, as we talked about last week. He is indeed the Son of God. And in confirmation of that, the Father sent a visible manifestation of the Spirit to descend upon him, this this acknowledgement of the uniqueness of Jesus' nature. You want to live a great life. Make sure you're acquainted with the greatness of Jesus Christ. Make sure that the focus of your heart and life, the greatest affection of your heart and life is knowing who Jesus is and relating to him properly along the way. He knew who he wasn't. He knew who he was. He knew who Jesus was. And a fourth mark of John's greatness is he knew the joy of fulfilling his God-given role and assignment. He knew the joy of fulfilling his God-given role and assignment. Skip over, if you will, with me to chapter three. Chapter three, verses 22 and following, talks about uh, the, the, the joy that John had in exalting Jesus Christ. The first few verses kind of set the stage. After this, this is sometime later, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but your tracking numbers are descending. John, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but you're losing your congregation. John, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but your poll numbers are dropping and his are skyrocketing. John, you used to be it. (laughs) You used to be the man. You used to be the one that folks would travel miles to see. And now, John... Kind of seems like you're starting to become yesterday's news. And here's John's response. 
He found security in God's sovereignty. The security of God's sovereignty. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. (laughs) Hey, I'm not sweating this. I'm not worried about this. Because everything I have, every opportunity, every problem, every challenge, it has all come filtered through the hands of a sovereign God. Tell you what, when you can rest in the sovereignty of God, it gives you a peace. It gives you a security. It gives you a strength. Even, even in a year like this one, right? That you can know that everything comes through the sovereign hand of God. And so John held it all loosely. My hands are wide open, Father, to receive whatever it is you want to pour into my life. But, But Father, when you pour it into my life, I don't grasp it. But I just, I hold it loosely. Because it may be mine and this opportunity, this resource, this this health, this privilege, whatever. Maybe mine to hold for a season. But it always comes from you. It always belongs to you. There's a security of God's sovereignty. He was resting in that. And he rested also in the acceptance of his humanity. The acceptance of his humanity, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. (laughs) Remember, I told you from the beginning, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. I'm a human being. I am a man, just like you, seeking to do what God called me to do. As a human being, I have strengths and weaknesses. I have challenges. I have struggles. I am a man. Just, I accept that. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful day. When you come to understand there is a God and it's not you, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, just a, it's a totally freeing thing, right? There is a God and it's not me. And there was this acceptance of his humanity and with that, the joy of being a part of God's purposes. The joy of being a part of God's purposes. We're just gonna continue. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
Now, now there's, again, cultural understanding here that, that will probably help us. The friend of the bridegroom in the ancient Near East culture held considerably more responsibility than the best man or a bridesmaid in, in, in kind of our wedding culture, right? So part of the, the friend of the bridegroom's responsibilities is he would help the, the groom, the bridegroom, prepare the home where he and the bride, so there would be this engagement, this betrothal period, and part of that that time was, and it could be months, could be longer, uh, but it, part of it was uh, the, the bridegroom was making preparation of where they were going to live. So it might be a separate house. It might be adding a room onto the house that uh, his parents had. And Jesus actually later in John's gospel kind of picks up on that imagery when he talks about him going away. And he talks about, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to you to receive you unto myself. That would have been the picture of what a bridegroom would have done. He would have gone off to prepare a place for his bride, and then at the appropriate time, he would have come back for his bride. There would be this wedding feast, these wedding activities, and that was another major responsibility of the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom uh, would kind of be the master of ceremonies uh, of the festivities, but one of the key things he would do was to guard the bridal chamber. Because in the midst of the, the, the wedding festivities, the bride at an appropriate time would slip off, try to be unnoticed by the guest, and would slip off into the bridal chamber. And the only person who was allowed to go in would be the groom. The friend of the bridegroom would stand there kind of on guard until the arrival of the bridegroom. And at that point, he would step aside. His, his assignment would have been complete. He would have known the joy, as it says here, the joy of, he hears, the rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, as the forerunner, John had basically two roles, <laughs> He was to prepare the way and then get out of the way. <laughs> that, that was it. He was to prepare the way of the Lord, to announce the imminent arrival of the king, to call people to repentance in preparation for the one in whom they would place and entrust their faith. And then once Jesus came, just like the friend of the bridegroom, he got out of the way. He got out of the way for the attention for the focus to appropriately be on the one who was to come. And he said, I found joy in doing what God created me to do. So what does John's story have to say about you and I today? Want to live a great life? Let me give you five quick thoughts out of this John's testimony of his life. The first is prepare the highway of your heart to receive Jesus Christ, the King. That's kind of the whole message of John's life. There is a King, and he has come once, and he is coming again. And as he's there, as we make preparation, we prepare our hearts. We prepare our hearts in repentance, turning away from a self-directed life, turning away from, from a kingdom of my little kingdom of one. 
and turning uh, to allow him to be not only the forgiver of my sin, but the leader, the Lord, the rightful king of my life that I entrust, as we said last week, my past, my present, and my future to him. Prepare the highway of your heart to receive Jesus Christ the King. And if we can help you in that at all, we want to, we desire to, please reach out to us after a service. Send an email, pick up a phone, reach out on social media. We would, we would be honored to continue this conversation. Prepare the highway of your heart to receive Jesus Christ the King. Secondly, ask God for the humility to know who you are not. All of us struggle with this sometimes, right? I'd like to look like that person. I'd like to have the resources of that person. I'd like to have the giftedness of that person. I'd like to have that opportunity. I wish I didn't have to deal with this problem or whatever. To be able to say, God, I don't know all the reasons, but this is who you have not created me to be. And that's okay. And Lord, we live in a world where we tend to rank things and we compete. And Lord, you didn't, you don't compare your creation. And so Lord, help me to have the humility to understand who I'm not, beginning with the fact that I'm not God. But also God, help me to have the wisdom to know who I am. Ask God for the wisdom to know who you are. See, genuine humility doesn't deny your strengths. It doesn't deny the strengths and capacities and abilities that God has given to you. It just simply recognizes that they all come from God and ultimately they are primarily for God. Humility is never about denying who God created you to be, the gifts and talents or the opportunities that he's given you. It's just a humble recognition that God, they all came from you I hold them loosely in my hand and they are all primarily in the end for you. Ask God for the wisdom to understand who you are. And as you come to that understanding, passionately, passionately fulfill your God-given role and assignments. <laughs> but but I, I, I would have kind of liked another assignment. No, 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 no. God knew what he was doing when he made you, you. And God knew what he was doing when he uniquely crafted and put you together. And he has a unique role for you to play in the body of Christ, in the building of his kingdom. And what he doesn't need me to do or you to do or anybody else to do is to spend all of our life fretting and worrying and fussing and, and about what we don't have or what role we don't get to play passionately, all in and all out, fulfill your God-given roles and assignment because if it came from God, it's significant. It's significant. The world may not ever applaud it, may not even get tons of financial reward for it, but it is significant because it's a God-given role and a God-given assignment. And fifthly, make sure you always focus on pointing others to Jesus. What made John's life great? He understood the greatness of Jesus and he understood the greatest thing that he could do would be to point other people to Jesus.
Whatever your platform, whatever your social circles, whatever your, your vocation, whatever your, your giftedness and talent and ability, whatever your platform, whether you think it's large or small, use it not to draw attention to yourself, but to point others to Jesus. Oswald Sanders said, the man who is most successful, who attaches the affection of his followers more to Christ than to himself. You know, we live in a day and age where we kind of have personality cult all over the place, right? How many followers do you have? (laughs) And what's your profile? Even in the church, we we can get swept up in the, the cult of personality. But that fades so quickly. Oswald Sanders had it right. You want to live for greatness, attach the affection of the people you influence more to Jesus Christ than to you. When we know the greatness of Christ and the love of Christ for us, we can live with this humble boldness. Humble because we know it all comes from God. We know it just lasts for for a short while. But a holy boldness because we're boldly pointing people to the greatness of of Jesus Christ. Bob Goff said, people will figure out what we believe when they see how we live. I started off by saying that we all live in accordance with some understanding of greatness. We're all gonna give our one and only life to pursuing something and or seeking to please someone. And over time, Even if it never becomes evident to us, it becomes evident to the people who know us well. Oh, we can cover it up with spiritual language. We can can doctor it up with religious gobbledygook. But over time, it is going to become evident what we understand greatness to be by what we pursue and who we seek to please. John's life reminds us that true greatness comes from pursuing and exalting Christ and pleasing him by fulfilling our God-given roles and assignments. And so the personal challenge for me and I hope for you is let's strive for greatness. Not as the world defines greatness, but greatness defined by the one who created us, the one who has saved us, the one who is at work within us and at work all around us. Let's strive for greatness. Pray with me if you would, please. Oh, Father. Thank you for the greatness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the example of of John who who came not exalting himself and not not jockeying for a position, but pointing others to you. And Father, I I pray, Lord, that that would be true in each of our lives. Father, would would you in grace help us to see what greatness we're actually pursuing? Would you help us by your grace to empower us to choose a great life, to live a great life that ultimately points others to the greatness of Jesus Christ. 
For it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.